Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. This week on Highways Voices, we focus on specialist testing of roads, runways and racetracks. How can we sort of sit down and make better predictions, better models of how our road surfaces are going to last? It's not rocket science. We talk better understanding of road surfaces, tyres and vehicles, putting the technology together to improve efficiency. Find out all about it on Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations ADEPT, the Transport Technology Forum, ITS UK and LCRIG. So Sir David Woodward is our guest on Highways Voices this week in a chat with Adrian, after Adrian has chatted about some stories that are catching his eye on Highways News this week. There is a once-in-a-decade opportunity to improve the road network with the additional funding announced by the government as well as reducing carbon and cost over the life cycle of roads. This is according to Paul Boss, Chief Executive of the Road Surface Treatments Association. His comments come after the government's announcement of an £8.3 billion 11-year road investment plan, in addition to the £200 million already announced for potholes this year. Under the government's Network North plan, with the money redirected after the cancellation of the northern leg of HS2, English local authorities will receive an extra £150 million this financial year, followed by a further £150 million for 24-25, with the rest of the funding allocated through to 2034. And Mr Boss said that he welcomed the additional funding and that this gave an opportunity for local highway authorities to massively improve the condition of their road networks, provided they implemented a proactive strategy of whole carbon and cost life cycle planning. A new study suggests older people could benefit from getting outdoors more in their neighbourhoods if there were better pavements and roads, alongside other measures such as reducing or slowing traffic. Research by Harriet Watt University, working with Sustrans and funded by Transport Scotland, found that older adults valued walking and staying active for their physical, mental and social well-being. This includes walking for everyday purposes, walking the dog and walking for leisure. And National Highways is set to retender its technical services framework, which covers geotechnical engineering services. In a recent prior information notice, National Highways confirmed that it will replace its current specialist professional and technical services framework too with the new version. The new framework, valued at approximately £495 million, would cover the period of 2024 to 2030. This includes the final year of National Highways' RIS 2 and all of RIS 3. It plans to start the tendering process within the next 6 to 12 months. If you haven't already, why don't you join the thousands who are following us on LinkedIn and X, that used to be Twitter, sending our stories as they're published. And you can also find them on our site, of course, and in our unique daily newsletter. Into your inbox every lunchtime if you sign up at highways-news.com. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. This week on Highways Voices, we hear from Dr David Woodward, reader in Infrastructure Engineering at Ulster University and Senior Scientific Officer at R3, an independent testing consultancy service for roads, runways and racetracks established to bring years of academic research and knowledge from the Highways Laboratory at Ulster University to the wider industry. Dr Woodward leads the Highway Engineering Research Group, which specialises in applied research into better understanding of road, runway and racetrack. He's developed extensive knowledge of the quarrying and asphalt industries and their products. So, with so many decades of research under his belt, 
Adrian asked him, what are his highlights? The main highlight has been working with industry. I've always worked in the quarrying and asphalt industries. Uh, and over that time, I think being involved in the mid-90s, early noughties, when there was the huge amount of work being done by the asphalt companies and coming up with their proprietary sort of hot-pass thin surface materials. Working with different companies, you would get aggregates, we get bitumens, we would talk to them, we'd combine them into different types of material. They put down trials somewhere and then we'd go and test them. At that time, I'd, I'd got sort of some funding from one of the research councils and I had got a grip tester. We were able to go out into the, the real world and, and test these road trials and back that up then with what we were doing back in the lab. And that, I think, was invaluable in that you were working with industry. You were talking to the people who were trying to come up with solutions and answers to problems that were just starting to develop then. We had problems with the supply of aggregates. Where are all these aggregates coming from? South of England doesn't really have any surface aggregates, so you have to look at the, the peripheral areas of the, the British Isles, Northern Ireland, the north of England, uh, Wales, uh, with aggregates coming from. So all the development we did looking at sort of skid resistance, and then we got into noise, uh, and then we got into rolling resistance. The trials all over the country, sort of from Brighton right up to north of Glasgow, just going off, testing, seeing what was happening, and then coming back and talking to the, the different people and sort of seeing what was working, what wasn't working, and how we could sort of move things on. Um, so I think that was the interesting bit then. And then all the recycling, the sustainability come in. Uh, and look at all the uses for the different waste streams. I think sort of over the about a 10-year period, we probably looked at about 30 different waste streams. We did some of the very early work uh, in cellulose fibres. And right at the very, very start, it was a case of telephone books, yellow pages. I think younger people now wouldn't know what a yellow pages telephone book is or was but basically these things come out every year and what do you do with the paper and there were companies back then looking at routes to to use this material and it was proposed that we put it into bitumen to modify the, the high stone mixes the early smas which then became the thin surfaces uh, and all the other proprietary materials so that was interesting sort of the early work we did in plastic like Plastic seems to be fairly recent, but we were looking at plastic 20-odd years ago. Uh, and then the more surreal things, people coming in with, for example, a a door off a kitchen cabinet saying, uh, can you recycle this kitchen door and put it into a road material? That was an interesting project, um, and basically you can. The early thin surface trials, the huge development that went on, all the recycling, the sustainability work, that sort of was like the first two phases of the past 40 years. And then that sort of leads into becoming bored, basically. And a little introduction sort of gave uh, an insight into to what uh, my research has basically evolved into, and that's with a, with a, a concern called R3, roads, runways, and racing tracks. And... Um, Late, I'm just trying to think, 20, 2008, we were doing some work 
for one of the, the big companies over in England. We were doing some skid testing with Grip Tester. And a friend of mine, he was working on microsurface and asked us, um, the parent company's doing some work at East Midlands using water takeoff rubber. Donington has, has asked us, um, can they do something similar on the track, take off some rubber, uh, maybe clean the track up a wee bit because the motorbike guys are saying that uh, fumes coming off the aircraft are on the track and, and, and cause them to slide and, and fall off. So that is, is really how um, the third main phase of a 40-year period of, of, of research, working with industry the whole period, uh, has evolved. And it's really the past, I don't know, long as that 15 years or whatever it is, um, I've seen this sort of new phase or the latest phase of combining sort of knowledge gained over, I don't know, supervising, involved in supervision of over 30 PhDs, majority of those involving industry in some way. Uh, and then sort of talking to people, a new group of people, let's say. Uh, this is what was so interesting when we started talking to the people who, who basically ran Donington. And then sort of when we're hanging about Donington, talking to some of the, the teams who turned up to take their cars around the track. And that sort of gradually evolved, um, kept, kept meeting people and sort of kept sort of working my way around most of the tracks in the UK and came to this realisation that track owners, race teams, tyre people, car people, were still living in the world of tarmac. Uh, you still hear it on, on Sky when the commentators uh, talk about the tarmac being green and the track starting to put rubber down. That's what it was like back then. And sort of one of the tongue-in-cheek things that I've been trying to do over the years, talking to these people, is to just basically butt into a conversation when they mention the word tarmac and say, actually, hold on there, that's asphalt. And then that opens up something that stops the conversation. What's this guy on about asphalt? Uh, and then it lets them see that there's something else that they may not know about. And again, as an academic, as a, as a researcher, doing a lot of work in materials and aggregates and bitumens and surface characteristics, rolling resistance, noise, all of this associated with the road industry. This realization that there are tires that travel across the surface. There are vehicles those tires are mounted on. It's a whole complete new world Let's say I've been trying to understand in this sort of third period of, of, of work in, in my academic career and then sort of having the avenue of, of dispersal, of the, the transfer of knowledge, what we like to say within academic circles, trying to create impact. Um, there's so much really good research done in the universities. But truth be told, very little of it ever filters down and to have an impact, creating change, making roads safer, making roads quieter, bringing in new ideas, making people realise that road industry, asphalt industry, they have to talk together. They have to understand how tyres are developed, how it's all done in simulation these days. A tyre company, the last thing they will do is make a tyre. Same with a car company. They're developing a new car that you'll buy on the forecourt, or the car that you see driving around a track on a Sunday afternoon somewhere, 99% of that is done in the computer and simulation because it fast tracks development. 
you can spend years driving a car around a road waiting for the car to fall apart. You can run that in simulation in a matter of days, drive millions of miles in simulation and see when something breaks, how something decreases in performance uh, and so on. You can play around with materials on the computer in simulation. And again, that is sort of an area that I've, I've try, been trying to get into the past couple of years. Uh, COVID didn't help. Just before COVID, it was all set up to get involved in it. And it's taken a little while over the past year or so. Within the university, we moved campuses. That didn't help. The research laboratory is was sort of off grid, so to speak, for a while. Uh, but we're now moved into this fantastic new campus in the middle of Belfast. And uh, anybody who listens to, to this podcast, please give us a call. Come and see us. Very, very happy to, to show you around our, our amazing new facilities. More from Dr. David Woodward from R3 in a mo after we've caught up with what's happening in the industry. Highways Voices, with the latest news and events from our partner organisations, ITS UK, Elkrig, Adept, and the Transport Technology Forum. Adept and Colas have published a new toolkit to tackle the staff retention crisis in local authorities across the country. Local authorities are experiencing a crisis in staff retention, leading to skills gaps that are having a serious impact on how councils provide services. Often in competition with the private sector, councils cannot offer the same salaries and career progression opportunities are not always clear. As a result, it can be difficult to keep hold of skilled employees. The Employee Retention Great Practice Guide was created in partnership with Colas and published at ADEPT's Autumn Conference. The toolkit brings together key partners to examine the challenges across place services more generally and identifies great practice examples on how to improve staff retention at all levels. The 11 examples outlined in the guide include professional development, mentoring and support, offering a better work-life balance and training opportunities tailored to place. The manager of the Transport Technology Forum, Darren Capes, says a new study into the ITS industry's export opportunities will help government focus its effort to support UK businesses grow internationally. The Department of Transport, through the TTF, funded the ITS export study produced by ITS UK, who gathered views from more than 100 ITS businesses in the UK. It looked into the levels of optimism around future export opportunities, current leading markets and those which the industry wishes to reach. The responses suggested a general optimism around the industry about future growth. The study provides ways in which the sector can achieve more and realise its huge export potential through government and industry working together and focusing that joint effort to best effect. And Elkrig have published attendance figures for this year's Strictly Highways, showing it was the biggest yet, with more than 400 delegates from both public and private sector in attendance over the two days. The event brought together the whole highways community and enabled everyone to learn about new innovation and technology share experiences, receive updates from the DFT and showcase the industry associations. Of those who turned up, 180 were from the public sector. More than 70 different highways authorities were there. 284 hotel rooms were reserved for delegates. There were 48 speakers across the two days and more than 50 exhibitors. Next year's event is back in Blackpool from the 1st to 3rd of October. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com. Now back to our big interview with Adrian, chatting to Dr. David Woodward. Now, R3 is 
has worked in Formula One. And what we're interested in is, is what you've learned from there, really, that can be applied in the road sector. I said, so the, the third major phase in, in being an academic researcher with 25 years of collaboration with the road industry is that we basically found ourselves on a number of racing tracks around the world, tracks that were used by Formula One, talking to track owners. And then I have to say, by chance, some of the race teams, it came to the realisation that we had some to offer, some to the surface, but also they had a huge insight that was missing from the road industry, from the asphalt industry, the bitumen industry, in that uh, I've already mentioned this this world of simulation. How a driver will could literally drive a racetrack with his eyes closed before they ever get to a track, whether it's the, the little computer games that I'm totally useless at. I have a setup in the lab where I basically learn the tracks. Uh, I see how many corners I can get around before I crash. That's how good I am at driving on a track. But when you talk to that extremely specialized industry, very, very difficult to talk to. But when you do talk to them, they're very nice people. They tend to listen and don't say very much. But when they do uh, say something and you sort of get slightly invited into their world, it opens up this huge disparity in knowledge, knowledge about what they know about their tires, what they know about their vehicle, their braking systems, all of those different aspects of a, a car or a tire. We have the equivalent in a road surface. We have the grip characteristics. We have the rolling resistance characteristics. We have the tire wear slash road surface wear characteristics. There's a lot in common and there's a lot to be learned about how to approach this huge goal which we are now facing within the road industry, that of achieving sort of carbon reduction, zero prototyping, um, as they as they call it in, in the car world. How can we sort of sit down and make better predictions? better models of how our road surfaces are going to last. It's not rocket science, but the tools that we have at the minute, methods of measurement, if we pick something very, very simple, like climate change, I think everyone would admit that we had one of the wettest summers in a long time. If we look at how aggregates are tested for road surfaces, some of the key methods do not consider the effect of water. So in terms of climate change and wet weather, the selection of aggregates, that's ignored. Now, I don't know, but to me, it's, it's a no-brainer. The methods of measurement, of measuring, let's call it grip, some of those have been around coming up to 100 years. So over the last 100 years, methods of measuring road surfaces haven't really changed. Whereas think of the technology, like would you think of a, a car that was being sold five years ago. Think of a car now, the developments in materials and performance. It's hybrid, it's hydrogen, it's electric, the braking systems on it, the amount of computers inside it, uh, as we go towards autonomous vehicles, all of that. Think of those developments uh, and think where we are at. Now, there is a very, very basic fundamental argument that if it's not broken, don't try to fix it. And I say roads have been around for a long time. 
We have some very old roads uh, in England, for example, the, the old Roman roads. But what's using the roads has changed fundamentally. And are, dare I say, belt and braces something that works or has worked in the past? Will it continue to work in the future? Do we need massive change? Probably not. Uh, do we need small incremental change? Probably yes. Where can those changes be? Recent conference, three of uh, North America's main uh, people involved in roads and looking forward towards carbon, net zero, climate change, all of those buzzwords that are all interconnected. The three of them basically all concluded that the one fundamental change that would have some benefit is having smoother roads. It's very, very simple. Smoother roads, the vehicle isn't, the suspension system isn't moving, the loading is, is uniform, and smoother roads with slightly less rolling resistance. You're getting tiny little bit improvement in, in miles per litre or kilometres per gallon or whatever metric you want to use. But when you add it up, all of those tiny little incremental improvements with having smoother roads, that's damage to the road, that's damage to the vehicle as well, and that's damage to the tyre. All those incremental little changes, that's where a lot of emphasis should be led. And again, it's having been involved in motorsport now for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, 15 years maybe, that's the one key thing that comes through when you look at a racetrack. A bump in a racetrack is two or three millimetres. That is a bump. That will affect car performance. So the recent tracks, the tracks that have been built over the past few years, it's quite simple to build to those tolerances. Two millimetres, that, that's your tolerance. You lay your asphalt, you compact it, you come out and you measure it for bumps, and that's what it has to be. The technology is there, it's proven, it's, it's straightforward. Why are we not using that on our, let's say, for example, our strategic road network? Um, the three odd thousand miles in England that get the most traffic. If you think about it, you want to have something that's going to have a, a change where it's incremental change or a, a small measurable change. If you start to put down smooth roads in England on the strategic road network, that will be measurable. That will be something that is achievable, that can be done. But that needs somebody to make a, de a decision. That needs somebody to say, yes, experts around the world, all the work is pointing towards smooth roads. Let's make our strategic road network smooth. England talks to Wales, to Scotland, to Northern Ireland, and all four parts of the UK, right? Okay, that's our policy. We're going to make smooth roads. We're going to get rid of the potholes. We're going to get rid of the cracks, the ruts, and everything else. The technology is there. The asphalt companies have got the materials to do it in terms of the asphalt materials. They've got the equipment to do it. Uh, and all it takes is someone somewhere to say, yes, let's go with this. Let's, let's make smooth roads. Let's make a, a major contribution to all of this concern that we have now about future generations and climate change and carbon and, and all the rest of it. However, there's an issue here, which again is something which is going to have part to play. When you look at road surface characteristics for 40 years at aggregates, 
at the choice of materials, the aggregates that we use have been using for many years. There are certain rock types which we have in the UK, which other countries don't have, but which we have because of geology. And um, those would be the, the aggregates with higher skid resistance. And I say those those tend to have a, a rough microtexture. If you think about how a tire rolls down a road, if you've got a rougher texture, then that is potentially going to counteract what smooth roads do. So there is important work, important decisions need to be made about the size or the types of texture that we create on our road surfaces. This is at the micro texture scale, which is the scale on the surface of the aggregate, the particles themselves. There is the texture at the macro scale, which is how you blend the different aggregate sizes together, whether it's a high stone mix or an asphalt concrete or a porous material or whatever, or some hybrid, whatever you want to call it, the texture created by that. Do we need higher PSV aggregates? I don't know. Well, I have an idea we don't. Because you go to every other country in the world, they do not have the aggregates that we, that we use. They don't have the 65s, the 68s. They don't exist. But yet, when I drive in America, Australia, New Zealand, Asia, China, wherever, I've traveled a lot over the years. I don't feel any more unsafe when I look down out the window of the car that I'm sitting in or driving and say, oh, look at that. The PSV of that would not be allowed on an English motorway. So there's a fundamental question there which has to be considered and addressed. And when I did my PhD back in 1995, for those who can remember back then, that was the early development when a lot of people were talking about the Construction Products Directive. This was all the work that was done prior to the Construction Products Regulation, which basically is, if you're going to sell a construction product, uh, whether it's aggregate or asphalt or concrete, right down to sanitary appliances. We all have these basic requirements. And uh, my PhD way back then was laboratory prediction of surface aggregate performance. At that time, I was working on the road trials that were the, the basis of the HAPAS uh, thin surface certification work. I had a really good idea of what it, of how a 6 mil or a 10 mil or a 12 mil SMA slash thin surface performed, whether it was for, for grip or noise. We were developing non-standard tests to try and predict performance in the laboratory. I gave the example earlier on in terms of climate change. Um, a lot of the tests don't consider the fact that it rains. What happens when you test aggregate, wear, dry and wet? Very, very fundamental thing. But that whole PhD was all about deconstructing test methods with the idea of improving prediction in the laboratory. When you've that sort of background with the road trials, with the testing, with all the work we did and recycled and reuse, and then you get into motor circuits and you're talking to tire people and car people, whether it's ordinary car people and ordinary tire people or the elusive cars that you might see on a Sunday afternoon and the elusive tires that they have. When you bring all of that together, particularly in the world of simulation, and you see how cars and tires are tested on, on uh, testing grounds, is there a need for a 68 PSV aggregate? That 
is a fundamental question. Do we need it? Is it still needed? There may have been a time in the past when cars didn't have the brakes, they didn't have the tyres that they have now, when that did save lives. But is that, at the moment, is that the best way to go forward in terms of carbon? I don't know. Low roll resistant asphalt surfaces, lower PSV aggregates, tied in with modern cars, modern suspension systems, modern braking systems, the intelligence, computers that are in the modern car that are basically driving the car for you. You're basically sitting there steering in a lot of cars. It's like watching Top Gear when they turn off all the traction control. Okay, they're trying to see how quickly they can burn out a set of tires. But if you turn off all the toys in a modern car, you won't get around too many corners before you're wrapped around a telegraph pole. And again, that's another unfortunate side that I've seen over the years is being involved in forensic type uh, investigation. And that side of work is not nice. On my walk to work last Wednesday, uh, I have to cross 10 streets to get to work. One of them has recently been resurfaced with a high friction surface. This is an aggregate that comes from China. It has, it has got horrible statistics in terms of carbon, but there is no natural aggregate that can, can give the same level of getting you stopped in an emergency. And as I was walking across the road, a lorry, I don't know, driver woke up and I disappeared on a cloud of tire smoke. As I was coughing and spluttering my way through lungs full of tire microparticles, I eyeballed the driver. And uh, I don't know whether he was on his phone or whatever, but that was so close to him killing me or vice versa, me being killed. And an extremely good example of why you do have to spend money sometimes import stone, special aggregates from China, from South America, put them down in localized locations because in that instance, that saved my life, that new surface. And I cannot thank the company uh, who did that work. Actually, I have thanked the guy responsible for it um, yesterday. Personally, thanked him for, for saving my life. That's every day in the road industry. People driving along, taking a lot of things for granted. There are potholes, cracks, ruts, loss of aggregate. There's many things going on with our roads. There's underinvestment, all sorts of things that I don't want to get into. But the bottom line is, it's how that tire interacts with the surface. The asphalt industry provides that asphalt surface or that specialist treatment surface, the white line, the high friction surface, the surface that has been recycled in situ, all of these different processes, which could be called belt and braces, but which we uh, rely on and uh, which keep our road network going. Everyone has its place, part to play and its place in the bigger system. But how do we take that forward? How do we apply the research? How do we transfer the knowledge? And again, since I've got into motorsport, that is the one fundamental overlying issue that I have great concern with, and that we've got three industries, the road industry, the tire industry, the car industry, the three of them don't talk to one another. When I go and talk at conference, I ask the question, that's how I started the, the my presentation. Nobody 
were from the industries that actually use the road surface. The years of research that go on in universities, the years of R&D by individual companies, the years of, of people sitting on committees agreeing up standards and specifications, all of that work. Everyone, as far as I know, there's almost no representation from the tyres and the vehicle companies. I've got reasonable experience of, of motorsport now with being in this rarefied world for a few years. It's been a great time. You get to talk to people, they ask you what appear to be really silly questions. And you ask them, well, what do you know? And they say, nothing. That's tarmac. And then you ask, okay, what's in the tyre? And they just say nothing. Not allowed to. It's interesting. Interesting stuff. My only regret is we didn't record that after the Las Vegas Grand Prix because with the track we saw there, it would have been interesting to hear David's views. Next time I'm in Belfast, I'll look forward to going and seeing his new facility and chatting to him about that and loads of other things. Anyway, it's nearly time to go, but before I do, here's Adrian's accolade. And Adrian, who are you tipping your hat to this week? And my accolade this week goes to the team at Cav 4th, which includes Transport Scotland and other autonomous vehicle suppliers. Its driverless bus project near Edinburgh, Cav 4th, has won Headline Vehicle of the Year prize at the inaugural Self-Driving Industry Awards. A fleet of five single-decker low-emission stagecoach buses, which have been taking fares in Scotland since early May, has given passengers their first taste of self-driving public transport in Scotland. Congratulations to all the team, and that's why they're worthy winners of my accolade this week. And that'll do it for this week. Next week, we'll be counting carbon with an adept project. But for now, thanks for listening, and we'll chat again next week. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 